Well, good morning. Uh, we're uh, reassembling now for our uh, next panel. Uh, I'm Robert George, and I'm the director of the James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions. I apologize for uh, whispering. I am afflicted with uh, laryngitis. But I uh, want to take uh, this opportunity to thank you all for being here, to thank our special guests, and in particular our European guests for helping to make this uh, conference such a uh, wonderful uh, and intellectually uh, vital conference. And above all, I want to say a special uh, word of thanks to my colleague Maurizio Veroli, who has been uh, the driving force. He would uh, perhaps excuse me on this occasion for being the spiritual, for saying he is the spiritual driving force behind uh, this uh, uh, conference. Uh, I uh, cannot uh, uh, express sufficiently my gratitude for, uh, to Maurizio for all he's done to put this uh, important conference together. Now I have uh, the pleasure of introducing uh, my colleague, uh, Robert Withnow, from the Department of Sociology. Professor Withnow is the Gerhard Andlinger Professor of Social Science at Princeton University and also the uh, director of our uh, Center for the Study of Religion. Uh, Dr. Withnow is a uh, scholar of enormous distinction uh, in the field of sociology, having done uh, extremely important work, continuing to do extremely important work on religion and other aspects of civil society, uh, including uh, community and the idea of community. Uh, but also, I think it's a very great tribute to uh, Professor Withnow and a uh, statement about uh, his uh, importance as a scholar that uh, he is a veritable machine for putting out brilliant graduate students uh, in sociology who are now doing outstanding work uh, that will be his uh, legacy uh, long after folks uh, in his generation and mine uh, have passed from uh, the scene. So please uh, join me in welcoming uh, Professor Robert Withnow. Well, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to be here, and uh, I, too, want to uh, express my uh, gratitude uh, to uh, Maurizio, uh, especially, for organizing uh, the conference, and also to Robbie uh, and the James Madison program uh, for sponsoring it. Is the sound okay for those of you in the back? Um, well, I'm especially pleased to uh, be here since uh, I am from a different uh, discipline, uh, sociology than most of you. I recall a comment, actually a lament, that Gene Elstein made in my presence oh, some six or seven years ago, I suspect. Uh, she was suggesting that uh, religion was uh, much less of an issue of interest in political science than it was in sociology. And I think that has probably reversed itself now, at least if I look at sociology, uh, one can think about the 400 or 500 people who teach at the top 15 or 20 universities, and you can count on one hand the number who are interested in religion. Uh, so I'm especially pleased to see a conference like this uh, with uh, so many political scientists and, of course, folks from other disciplines as well. So on the topic of civil religion, uh, I realized when I agreed to 
be part of this conference that it was just about 20 years ago that I gave a paper on civil religion as a lounge seminar uh, in the religion department here. And in that lecture, I argued that American civil religion was separating into two different strands. Uh, for convenience or as a kind of shorthand, I suggested that one strand might be summarized by the phrase in the Pledge of Allegiance, one nation under God. And the next phrase in the Pledge of Allegiance, with liberty and justice for all, pointed to the other strand. One nation under God was increasingly the rallying cry of evangelical Protestants and traditional Catholics. It was a public theology that emphasized the need for national unity in obedience to God for our nation's uh, prosperity and the God of our forefathers. Uh, and it argued that America has a divinely ordained responsibility to uphold standards of moral decency. Then in contrast, the with liberty and justice for all phrase was a banner more appealing to liberal or progressive Catholics and Protestants, uh, as well as many Jews, uh, and as, uh, as, as well with a number of people who had no affinity to religion at all. It was grounded as firmly in American traditions as the other view, uh, but this public theology emphasized individual rights, personal freedom and diversity, uh, especially in the realm of moral decisions. Uh, and it emphasized justice, especially for excluded minorities and for the poor. Well, that paper or that lounge seminar 20 years ago became a chapter in my 1988 book that was called The Restructuring of American Religion. The title of that chapter, which I shamelessly borrowed from Irving Kristol, was Two Cheers for America. Well, as I say, that was two decades ago, so what do I think about American civil religion now? To answer that question, we need to first remind ourselves what we mean by civil religion, uh, and to do that, I think we do, as previous speakers have, have also emphasized, we need to go back to Bella, especially, who, of course, drew from, from Rousseau, uh, but who also brought in a Tocquevillian perspective that is in my view, more helpful than Rousseau in the American context. Civil religion, which was the term Bella used rather than civic religion, can be defined in a functionalist way as any means through which a people associates itself with transcendence, a functionalist definition. But in my view, that Tillichian adaptation is really too broad to be useful and so in The Broken Covenant, Bella operationalized the concept in more manageable terms as what I would describe at least as the use of God language with reference to the nation. For instance, when a public official closes a speech with God bless America, that's civil religion. Or when a U.S. president asserts that freedom is almighty gift, God's gift to humanity, and does so in defending U.S. foreign policy, that is civil religion. In short, civil religion is all about public discourse and the symbolism instantiated in this discourse. Two things it is not. 
It is not an umbrella term for all the possible ways in which religion and politics may commingle, which is sometimes the problem in treatments of civic religion. For instance, the current administration's Office of Faith-Based and Community Initiatives may, but does not necessarily, involve civil religion if all it does is to set standards and encourage a level playing field for organizations like Catholic Charities or the Salvation Army to provide social services. Nor does a voter guide by the Family Research Council necessarily constitute civil religion, even though many who receive it may be church members. Secondly, civil religion is not unconstitutional. Although as a cultural or discursive way of linking church and state, there are sometimes instances in which constitutional questions arise. It is perfectly appropriate for a public official to say, God bless America, just as it is for a member of the clergy to say this. It is only under those special circumstances where government appears to be mandating civil religion that constitutional questions arise. This is why the under God clause has sometimes generated litigation. Civil religion is primarily cultural rather than constitutional. So what role does it play in American culture? Its role is largely one, I would argue, of legitimation. Legitimation which can run in at least two different directions. When a public official uses God language, the legitimation that results accrues to the policymaker, a policy, something the policymaker stands for, and perhaps to the nation itself. Legitimation of this kind is not without roots or links to the social structure. And it is these links that have most interested sociologists and political scientists. The effective use of God language in reference to the nation depends on the fact that certain grassroots constituencies understand and appreciate the God language being used. They may consciously understand it and embrace it, or they may tacitly appreciate it, meaning that it sounds right or it rings true, as we say. If this kind of legitimacy runs uphill, as it were, from the populace to the representatives, the other kind runs downhill. It consists in some constituency receiving recognition or an implicit endorsement for itself. One may recall Ronald Reagan in a speech to the National Religious Broadcasters saying, you cannot endorse me, but I can endorse you. One other conceptual point in need of clarification is that civil religion is not only metaphor or framing as the linguist-turned-political commentator George Lakoff seems to think. Civil religion does not succeed or fall because we believe God is above us or that we label terrorists as evil instead of dangerous. Civil religion is narrative. It begins, Bella reminds us, borrowing heavily from Iliadi, with a myth of origin, a story about how our nation came into being, and it proceeds to tell us stories about the good we have done in the world and what it takes to be successful and pure as a nation. 
God Bless America points to the stories we tell ourselves about God blessing the American founders and the troops in World War II and my family and even my football team. I'll come back to that point. Surprisingly and regrettably, civil religion has not been examined much in recent years. Thus, I need to draw primarily from a large research project of my own that began in 1998 and included a national survey conducted in 2003 and hundreds of in-depth qualitative interviews. That research has now been published in my book, America and the Challenges of Religious Diversity. The project was concerned with understanding how the majority Christian population of the United States is responding to the growing presence of Muslims, Hindus, and Buddhists in our society. This is an issue that has gained increasing attention, of course, because of the large influx of immigrants since the U.S. immigration laws were changed in 1965. However, it is also a historical issue. For nearly every major leader in American history, from Jonathan Edwards to Thomas Jefferson and Joseph Priestley to the denominational and missionary leaders of the 19th century, more recently to Reinhold Niebuhr, Will Herberg, and John Courtney Murray in the 20th century, they've all addressed questions of religious diversity. In popular culture, there's still a widespread sense of our nation's religious history that colors how people think about religious diversity. And a key element of that popular understanding of the nation concerns our civil religion. Large segments of the population believe that America was founded by Christians, has been great because of the beliefs about God that Christians and perhaps Jews have expounded, and that America should continue to think of itself in these ways. For instance, 78% of adults in the United States, this is not just Christians, but adults in the United States, think that the United States was founded on Christian principles. An equally high proportion, 79%, agree that America has been strong because of its faith in God. Almost as many, 73%, agree that in the 21st century the United States is still basically a Christian society. And more than half, 55%, believe that our democratic form of government is based on Christianity. Now, survey responses like that always need to be treated with caution. It could be, for instance, that people are merely reporting what they perceive to be descriptive characteristics of the society when they give responses like these. However, from the many qualitative interviews we did, as well as from a closer analysis of the survey responses, it becomes clear that these are not only descriptive responses, but also prescriptive responses. America not only has been great because of its faith in God, but should continue to promote and uphold this faith as part of what people are saying. For instance, 64% of the public agrees that the public schools should teach the Ten Commandments. And people who espouse the various civil religion beliefs I just mentioned are much more likely to want the Ten Commandments taught in public schools than people who do not espouse those beliefs. The research showed several other interesting, though probably not surprising, features of the public support of these tenets of American civil religion. 
First, there is a close connection with electoral behavior. Because the survey was conducted in 2003, we could not ask people how they voted or planned to vote in the 2004 election, but we did ask how they had voted in 2000. I could have brought some maps and PowerPoints and so forth. Instead, I brought my blue and red tie to remind us of that election. So what we found was that those who scored highest on a scale or an index summarizing some of the various religious, civil religious statements I just mentioned were the ones who overwhelmingly voted for Bush, while those who scored lowest overwhelmingly voted for Gore. Indeed, a map of states in which people scored highest on civil religion produced almost a perfect replication of the map of so-called red states. Had Karl Rove needed to search any harder than he did for a key to win the 2004 election, he could hardly have done better than focusing on civil religion. Another aspect of civil religion that came through clearly in the research is its link with people's personal beliefs about religion. Grassroots theology, as I came to call it, is remarkably robust. I say remarkably because social scientists usually dismiss theology and argue that religion, if it can be imagined to be important at all, is simply a matter of the social capital you do or do not have, or perhaps your location in the class structure. What we found in contrast is that people have very deeply held beliefs, though not always very thoughtfully developed, deeply held beliefs in any case about God, Jesus, the Bible, salvation, how to relate best to God, and the moral implications of this relationship with God. About a third of the U.S. population can be described as spiritual shoppers. They pick and choose from any and all religions, and they piece together their own beliefs by ignoring a lot of the profound differences among religion, among religions. A second third are Christian inclusivists. They identify firmly with the Christian tradition. They are committed to their churches, and yet they have an open mind about the truth of other religions, which, somewhat like spiritual shoppers, they have not bothered to think about very much. And then the other third are Christian exclusivists. They adhere firmly to Christianity and believe that only Christianity is true. The relevance of all of this to civil religion is just that Christian exclusivists are the ones who are the strongest proponents of civil religion. Christianity is not only exclusively true for them, it is a collective good that should be embraced by the nation, although this usually does not mean that they evangelize their neighbors. The research also showed that grassroots theology is a very strong predictor of how Americans are responding to people of other faiths besides Christianity. Christian exclusivism is at the heart of negative stereotyping of Muslims, uh, for instance, as being violent and fanatical, and of Hindus and Buddhists, for instance, viewing them as backward or strange or dogmatic. Among all Americans, nearly a quarter do not believe that Muslims should be allowed to worship in the United States. 
The percentages who believe that the government should conduct surveillance on Muslim, Hindu, and Buddhist groups is even higher. Of course, one might anticipate that believing in the exclusive truth of one's own religion would go arm in arm with holding other religions at bay. However, exclusivist Christians also disproportionately disapprove of Asian Americans and Latinos, the majority of whom, of course, are Christian. And they are the least welcoming toward immigrants of all kinds. Again, these are effects that hold when other factors such as education, age, gender, and social class are taken into account. But lest it appear that the research simply points a condemning finger at exclusivist Christians, let me add two observations. One is that Christian inclusivists and spiritual shoppers are not doing much to help the discussion about religious diversity because they hardly ever spend any time thinking about it. They tacitly assume that all religions are the same and thus wish away the problem of interreligious tensions and for that matter often do not have good reasons for being true to their own faith. The other is that exclusivist Christians are doing a lot of implicit cultural work to adapt to the fact, for instance, that their best friend may be Jewish and that their co-workers may be Muslim. For instance, they are learning to be less doctrinaire, to understand the Christian faith more explicitly as a gospel of love, and if they are Protestants, to emphasize more explicitly what Catholics have always understood better, namely the mystery of God. The view of civil religion that emerges from this research shows a great deal of continuity then with the one I identified 20 years ago. The one nation under God's strand is still prevalent. Liberty and justice for all emphasis is also evident. These are not mutually exclusive orientations now any more than they were then. And indeed, there are notable examples of individuals and groups who combine the two. However, there are deep and enduring differences. The growth and growing awareness of religious diversity has generated responses that reflect these differences. The view that America is and should be a Christian nation, or at least a nation that worships a God most familiar to Christians and Jews, is still very much in evidence. Demographically, the only indication of it perhaps weakening is that younger people are significantly less likely to espouse that view of civil religion than older people are. Politically, it is still the case that presidents and presidential candidates of both parties must espouse at least some of this language and take its most vocal constituents very seriously. The liberty and justice interpretation of American civil religion is also present, but is more of a cultural mixture. Part of this heritage has been embraced by Christian exclusivists who argue that freedom in Christ means also promoting freedom abroad through economic and even military intervention. But part of this tradition is also evident among Christian exclusivists who take a more accepting approach to their neighbors and who emphasize helping the poor and working for social justice. Christian inclusivists, of course, are sometimes among the most active advocates for social justice as well. The most common approach to liberty and justice at the popular level, though, is a form of civic republicanism, as Bella called it at least, or what might now better be described simply as constitutional liberalism. It is a language of tolerance and rights, 
It largely supports legal safeguards against discrimination, but seldom goes much further. It is the kind of tolerance that says, hey, just leave me alone. You do your thing and I'll do mine. And that brings me finally to my earlier point about narratives. There was another argument in my 1988 book about civil religion that most readers missed. I argued not only that civil religion was divided, but also that it was being replaced by a de facto faith that was much more powerful because we seldom even thought about it or questioned it. This faith emphasizes technological prowess, the science we assume is the source of this prowess, and the material comforts that derive from it. In a book I just published this spring called American Mythos, Why Our Best Efforts to Be a Better Nation Fall Short, I have returned to this theme and have tried to develop it further. The problem is not just that we uh, like and thus accept uncritically the material benefits that come from living in America. The problem is that the narratives or those stories we tell about ourselves are usually half-truths that we seldom spend enough time thinking about or examine critically. We tell stories about the sacrifices that have made the privileges we uh, enjoy, ones that we deserve so that privilege becomes justified. Or we tell uh, the traditional stories again and again about self-made men and women, uh, again often in the case of recent immigrants, uh, who have become successful. And then we fail to see the social resources that have contributed to their success. And we tell stories about religious and ethnic diversity, but do not examine how shallow that diversity often is. We need to do better than this. We need a reflective democracy in which cultural criticism is taken seriously. Otherwise, we are merely the pawns of commercial advertising and political ideologues. Thank you. Thank you very much, Professor Wuthnow. That's going to give us an awful lot to chew on uh, in the question uh, period. But before we uh, get to the questions, uh, we have the pleasure of hearing Professor uh, Peter Lawler. I have the uh, pleasure of serving with Peter on the President's uh, Council on uh, Bioethics. And when he is not helping to solve the nation's bioethical dilemmas, he is a Dana professor and a chairman of the Department of Government at uh, Berry College. Uh, like Professor Wuthnow, uh, Professor Lawler has written, although in Professor Lawler's case from a political theorist's pers uh, perspective, uh, on problems of community, uh, civil society, and individualism. So it's a pleasure to welcome back to Princeton uh, Professor Peter Lawler. I appreciate the opportunity to be here. Here is my idea for this morning. I wanted to give an appreciative but critical account of the view of America of our most famous recent, most famous recent friendly French critic, Bernard Henri Levy. <coughs> because of Garrison Keillor, everyone laughs, but it's not fair. His uh, best-selling book, American Vertigo, is an account of his repetition of Alexis de Tocqueville's famous journey across our country. Although this time I was in a chauffeur-driven car. I want to be a friendly critic 
of our admirably friendly critic. Levy is an atheistic but not a nihilistic philosophic defender of human rights everywhere against every form of fascism, against communism, Nazism, jihadism, and the religious right wherever it exists everywhere. It's good to be very serious about defending rights. And Levy differs from most of his countrymen by having a, a very deep appreciation of the intention in that regard of our neoconservative policymakers influenced by Leo Strauss. In fact, he thinks they're much more influenced by Strauss than they really are. So all in all, it's good to defend rights. Nihilism is bad, and he's not a nihilist. But in my opinion, his dogmatic atheism causes him to be utterly blind to the way religion supports political liberty in America. That is, here's a hypothesis he doesn't consider. The religion believed by many Americans might be true. But after listening to the wonderful conversations yesterday and the great presentations this morning, I realized that Leve and I have one key point in common. Well, many, but one I'm going to talk about now. We consciously, consciously object to the very idea of civic religion or civil theology. I object as a Christian and an American. He, object, he objects as a purely philosophical defender of human rights everywhere. So let me summarize our objection in a southern way. Civil theology ain't true. In support of my conclusion, I'm going to take a somewhat different route from Levy, I guess. I'm going to begin with the authority of St. Augustine. Augustine uses a truth about the human person expressed by Christian theology to criticize the natural theology and the civil theology of the Greeks and the Romans. Natural theology, the theology of the philosophers, is not completely true because it misunderstands human beings as merely part of nature. Both our longings and our capabilities point beyond nature, as Eden Levy would agree, in the direction of freedom. We are, in some sense or another, made in the image and likeness of the personal God who is not essentially part of nature. Civil theology is untrue, as a cosmopolitan Levy would agree, because it misunderstands human beings as essentially citizens. As Socrates says, the heart of civil theology is always the observation, the perception, that our very being depends upon the cave created by our founders and our poets. And the gods or God or the sacred or some such thing is created to help us or make us do our essentially political duties. But here I have to say, those gods aren't real. The cave isn't real. The cave isn't real in the sense that it does, uh, it does not express the deepest truth about our being. Now that doesn't mean we don't owe a whole lot to what we've been given by our country. I'm a follower of Brownson to some extent. That's not to say we're not citizens with political duties. Here's the point. Each of us is much more than merely a citizen. 
And citizenship in itself doesn't have a divine or theological foundation, although we might well perform our civic duties for religious reasons. Now, at this point, you might say, civil theology isn't true. Civil religion isn't true. So what? It's still useful. Anything that helps people be good, do their indispensable political duties, can't be bad. But here's the trouble with that utility argument expressed so well at the end of the last session, according to St. Augustine. As a country becomes more and more enlightened, sophisticated, and cosmopolitan, fewer and fewer people will believe that civil theology is true. Precisely because it's not true, it becomes progressively less useful. So civil theology became less and less useful for, the Ath for Athens and Rome as they moved from being republics to empires. And we can say the same thing about some kind of movement to a continent-wide union. So civil theology is naturally replaced by cosmopolitan relativism with all its morally and politically decadent effects. The eclipse of modern the civil theology is at the foundation, perhaps, of European nihilism. Consider, as is expressed today, I'm not really talking about Hitler there particularly. Consider, as Professor Neely reminded us yesterday and Professor McClay this morning, that civil theology attempted to make a comeback in the modern world through the influence of Rousseau. Who thought, Rousseau thought that Christianity is both untrue and very bad for us. It alienates each of us by giving us divided and incompatible loyalties. The crazy attempt to try to do justice to both the city of God and the city of man is bound to screw up both individuals and nations. And Rousseau, of course, also devoted himself to overcoming a specifically modern form of alienation, that of the inauthentic bourgeois guy invented by the Enlightenment philosophers such as Thomas Hobbes and John Locke. Rousseau, we might say, wrote against the two forms of alienation we see even or especially in America today. The first is the alienation of that otherworldly American evangelical who also tries to be the perfect American patriot, person described by Professor Worthnow just a moment ago. The other is a, a characteristic of our creeping and sometimes creepy libertarianism that is turning more and more of our lives over to the cold and selfish principles of contract and consent. So anyone who would say something bad about Rousseau would have to say something good about our experiences of alienation. And I'm going to do it. They're true. That is, they reflect a lot of the real truth about our being. In our misery, as the greatest of the French says, Pascal says, we find our greatness. But Rousseau would remedy our alienation by making us whole or authentic again as citizens. He would make us citizens against our natural grain. He would make us at home in our political world. It seems obvious to me that radical attempts to free human beings from the Christian and bourgeois alienation that alienation described so expertly by Marx in On the Jewish Question is what alienated the political religion, as some call it, at the foundation of the murderous totalitarianism of the 20th century. But that's yesterday's news, probably, totalitarianism. So I don't want to talk about that. 
Let me make a more obvious point, a point that's been made time and again at this conference. Inspired by Rousseau, the French revolutionaries tried to replace Christianity with civic religion. And as we heard yesterday, they had their reasons. But I have to say this, that didn't work very well over the long term. Today's enlightened, sophisticated, and prosperous citizens of France believe hardly at all in the God of the Bible. They're pretty convinced, in fact, that he ain't true. He ain't real. But they believe, maybe even less, that their nation has some kind of sacred or divine foundation. Dare I say they believe less and less in the future of their country at all, while at the same time lacking Levy's own resolute uh, effort to em embrace all means necessary to defend philosophy, the truth, and defend human rights against all those forces that threaten them. The inability of Europeans to think responsibly or truly about their human future by, for example, having babies or funding formidable armies from an American view is at the heart of European nihilism. The Europeans tend to believe from an American view that they are living in a post-familial, post-political, and post-religious paradise that is in truth impossible on this earth. But I don't want you to think I'm anti-French. <laughs> there are a lot of good things about France. I already mentioned Pascal. Let me mention another name, Tocqueville, a name that's been mentioned predictably by these political theorists perhaps too often, but that won't stop me. Because Tocqueville wrote the best book on America and the best book on democracy, which he called, conveniently enough, Democracy in America. Tocqueville says something like this, I'm all for the American separation of church and state because that's what protects our Christian religion from becoming a civil religion. Ours is not a religion of democracy, but ours is a religion that creates a counterculture that protects us from the excesses of democracy. Ours, our religion protect, protects the truth about the human individual from democratic or modern deformation. Here's the problem. Democrats are too suspicious of any personal authority, too suspicious of love. And they are so habitually skeptical that they even have very low opinions of themselves. They have a hard time believing, as Professor Mahoney said, that they have souls, that they are more than material and political beings. So the point of religion is to remind Americans against the modern and democratic, uh, democratic grain that they have souls. That is to remind them of the truth, which they otherwise might miss by going to college. So in our country, our unrivaled patriotism and devotion to our political future can be explained by the fact that our religion is not primarily a civil religion. Our devotion to virtue, to our families, to our country, and to God can be explained most of all by the fact that so many Americans believe that our religion is true. The scandal of America for Europeans is that so many Americans take seriously the question of the real existence of the God of the Bible around whom we should orient and direct our lives. This is the silliest thing about America for living.
even sillier than lap dancing, which he sort of liked. <laughs> Although he was like Chauncey Gardner, he liked to watch. <laughs> All right, now I'm going to turn to uh, my criticism of Levy's view of American religion, which amounts to this. He wasn't open to mind to consider this possibility. It's true. Irrational factors, Levy thinks, were responsible for the two shameful victories by the infidel, infantile conservative George W. Bush. And the neocons, that is, those tricky Straussians, Levy speculates, played along with the irrational crusade for moral values to gain their support for our rationalistic foreign policy. That is, that other kind of crusade. At one point, he contradicts his speculation by reluctantly admitting that Bill Kristol, famous neoconservative, seems actually to agree with the Bush administration's anti-enlightenment positions on issues such as the death penalty, abortion, gay marriage, and the place of religion in American politics. Levy doesn't go on to make sense out of Bill Kristol's apparent perversity because it so clearly to him makes no sense. And that's why, I mean, and the reason for that is, Atheistic individualism is rationalism for Levy and the only foundation for a non-repressive morality. Now, here's what that means from my American point of view. That means he really believes that the erotic longings that lead us to personal connections with our spouses, children, friends, fellow citizens, and God himself are illusions and dangerous illusions at that. Levy seems to surrender the future of the family, genuine friendship, the nation, and God himself to what he regards as a consistent devotion to reason and rights. So Levy doesn't see that enlightenment extremism or radical philosophic individualism is at heart a war against love. One sign of one or more too many victories in that war, of course, is the birth dearth we find in much of Europe and among the relatively secular or progressivist Americans who voted for Kerry. And Levy calls Kerry a perfect European. That is, he agrees with our Republicans. Uh, considering, uh, uh, considering demographic trends alone, we would have to make this point. The future of the West belongs to observant American religious believers. But Levy's general rationalistic view is American belief is vulgar and repressive. And his defense of it amounts to this. It's not, as it's not as stupid and repressive as Europeans usually think. The challenge of creationism and all that stuff to the Enlightenment is in principle fundamental. But it's undercut, Levy explains, by the sheer banality of American evangelical women exercising to be fit for Jesus. Which is actually funny. A real Christian, after all, would have to believe that Jesus loves fat girls, too. <laughs> I, mean, he, I, mean, he, I mean, he really did not even touch the surface of, uh, the surface of evangelical culture. Uh, due to my fine evangelical friends here at Princeton, I now believe evangelical mind is not an oxymoron. I, I, um, I'm kind of more ambivalent on evangelical book. Uh, <laughs> But evangelical culture, I'm on firm foundation. That is an oxymoron. Uh, yes, I mean, consider for the moment uh, evangelical music, Christian rock, an offense against 
both traditional Christianity and classic rock and roll. <laughs> or as Hank says to Bobby on the best of the TV shows next to Big Love, uh, the best of the TV shows, son, you're not making Christianity better, you're just making rock and roll worse. <laughs> But Levy reproaches, Levy reproaches our evangelicals. He likes that word reproach a lot, by the way. He approaches our evangelicals for trying to get rid of the distance, the transcendence, and the remoteness of the divine that is at the heart of European theologies. The American God, uh, as he sees him, is a good guy God, someone who loves you one by one, a personal God, the friend who has your best interests at heart, a God without mystery. Now, there's something, and maybe a lot, to Levy's criticism of making God too consumer-friendly at the expense of mystery and transcendence, and so to his criticism of megachurches that look like banks. But his tirade is also directed against any understanding of the Creator as someone who loves each of us in particular and provides authoritative moral guidance for each of our lives. Megachurched Americans who attempt to live consistently Christian lives are his, his contemporary example of Tocqueville's petty and schoolmarmish soft despotism, of people who have surrendered the trouble of thinking about and taking responsibility for their own futures. Disoriented rather than exhilarated by modern freedom, our evangelicals and orthodox believers, he thinks, are ready to succumb to the most ridiculous, meddlesome, and puritanical form of authority around. So Levy actually shows more disdain for the evidence he can't help but see that evangelicals actually believe in and live according to the word of the biblical God than he does for the ways in which they are somewhat co-opted by the dominant or bourgeois culture. That's because Levy's European, the divine, is for all practical and psychological purposes irrelevant. He isn't even a hidden God without whom, according to Pascal, we are miserable. Even Pascal's God the understanding of the God of the Bible who haunted Tocqueville is a good guy in the sense that he is a person or guy, not to mention a good friend, unlike the impersonal or inaccessible God of Aristotle or the philosophers. But Levy has eyes and he's pretty smart, so his view of uh, his atheistic contempt of American religion is not all that consistent. He once makes the Tocquevillian observation that the hypothesis shared by most American churches about sin and radical evil and the natural limits they impose on all nations, that is sin and radical evil imposed on all nations, even democratic ones of reshaping, reshaping society, supports political liberty and even reflects the truth about human liberty. And he even mentions a Catholic teacher, a believer in homeschooling, who wanted to snatch his children out from under the steamroller of dominant thinking that is from the nihilism of program stupefaction that always endangers us in our high-tech world. Now, if Levy would only think about these countercultural and anti-imperial impulses of American religion, he would really follow Tocqueville and connect our genuine belief to our patriotism and our political responsibility, our relatively high birth rate and healthy families, and our willingness to take all sorts of risks on behalf of our futures and our liberty. He might also have seen that America's orthodox and evangelical believers are in truth in no danger at all of being seduced by fascism. By televangelists, yes. Uh, 
But, uh, but, uh, but, but not both fascism is different. The European fascists characteristically were the most rootless and alienated people around, members of some lonely crowd looking for some leader to make sense out of their pathetic lives. Fascists begin as individuals in the Tocquevillian or isolated and apathetic sense, disconnected from country, class, community, friends, and family. But our evangelical and orthodox believers are characteristically the least lonely and alienated Americans. They're the ones most likely to be at home with their spouses, children, friends, country, and church. And they're the ones most likely to see the connection between their political liberty and their personal happiness. I could say more, but I won't. Thank you. Thank you, Peter. Uh, okay, uh, time to uh, begin the uh, discussion. Uh, it's the long-standing custom in the Madison program to give uh, priority uh, in these discussions to uh, undergraduate and graduate students. Uh, judging from past experience, uh, Saturday mornings uh, are not times in which we have a lot of undergraduate questions. <laughs> I do see that we have uh, some undergraduates and some graduate students here, so if any of them would like to open the questioning, that would be uh, terrific. Otherwise, we'll make it uh, uh, open, open to everybody now. Any grad students have uh, want to begin? Yeah, please. Sure. sign here in front of me saying that I must restate or paraphrase all questions and comments so that they can uh, go on to the tape. So uh, uh, you, you've all heard that. Let me very uh, quickly say that the, uh, the question has to do with, uh, it's addressed to Professor Lawler as to how he can square uh, his view that uh, exclusivist Christians or strong evangelicals and other Orthodox believers are at least susceptible to fascism with Professor Wuthnow's data tending to show more xenophobic uh, feelings among uh, those uh, who are categorized in Professor uh, Wuthnow's study as exclusivist Christians who show uh, more animosity and mistrust of Asians, uh, other minorities, uh, Muslims and so forth, and also a stronger uh, uh, affinity uh, or tendency, according to uh, the question, to uh, support or to excuse torture and uh, imperialism and other anti-Christian uh, ideas, or at least from the questioner's uh, perspective as a, a Jewish person, someone who uh, under understands Christian Christianity to be, to be against those things. Yeah, Professor Law. I almost think this should be answered by Professor Worth now, because he's the man who has the studies which show things. But the, uh, uh, but, uh, but my, my answer would be something something like this. A moderate amount of xenophobia is not fascism, although I don't, in fact, approve of it. 
I, I would also say something like this uh, to support what Professor McClay said in, in, the, in the last uh, period. Uh, there was the question, uh, which I thought was ill-considered in some ways, that gay marriage, racism, they're all the same thing, right? But in fact, racism is not in accord with Christian doctrine, whereas opposition to gay marriage would be, in fact, an article of, of faith. And so it is true that Christians are more likely to see limits to tolerance. But I would, I would add this, that the, 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 uh, the, the tendency there, which I think is not altogether absent, might be, might be looked, in, 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 looked at in a different sort of way. The Christians, genuine believers in America, Orthodox and Evangelical believers, really do feel put upon in, in this respect. As liberalism progresses, they have less and less space to, to, to practice uh, their religions, right? Uh, the dominant culture is more, more opposed to them. And I think that is at uh, the, the source of a lot of what we show up in the polls as intolerance. Also, I would add, uh, not that I have Professor Worth now's uh, cause-effect thing going on here, uh, that it is true people in rural areas and in small towns and, and, and all that uh, are disproportionately Christian, so you'd have to ask yourself the question, do their, their views insofar as they <clears throat> come from the religion or from some other factor, uh, you'd have to prove to me that the religion is the cause of the thing. And then with respect to American imperialism, uh, this is a matter Christians are in dispute about. Uh, there, there's no one who's all excited about torture and, 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 prison, and prison, uh, prisons in other countries. The, the, big, the, big, the big question would be uh, simply this. Uh, is it correct to say we should have an imperialistic policy with the intention of spreading freedom and democracy everywhere? Uh, I think opinions on this are relatively religion neutral. For example, Levy, uh, he endorses all our foreign policy with respect to universal human rights, except he said the he said the Iraq War was morally good but politically bad. That is, we should it was a wrong shot to pick given all the facts. But he did say it was morally good from a completely atheistic point of view. And I think many of our neocons might be too far to say they have a completely atheistic point of view, but they have an atheistic point of view. And then many Christians I know, and especially many Catholics I know, are very much opposed to the Iraq War as, as a manifestation of Know, secular American imperialism. So in fact, you have believers on, on both sides of this issue, and not surprisingly, because finally at the end of the day, it is a matter of prudence, I think, that there, there were reasons for kicking out Saddam. Uh, were, the were the benefits uh, uh, worth the cost? I think it's not, you'd have to be not a thinker to, to reach the conclusion that it's, it's, more, that it's a matter of absolute morality never to invade other countries, and Christians have to believe it's a matter of absolute morality never to invade other countries. Bob, did you want to comment at all? Sure. Um, it's a great question, Elliot, and thanks for asking it. Um, on the point about whether you call them Christian exclusivists or evangelical Christians, and they're not exactly the same, the same thing, but on the point about why they may be more uh, xenophobic, uh, or at least uh, less welcoming toward uh, other groups. My simple answer to, to that from 
especially these qualitative interviews, you really get to talk to people in some depth, is that people don't think very deeply about their theology. Um, they have a kind of knee-jerk response that that's very important to them, and it, it, it runs to, their, to the heart of their faith in the sense that they understand their Christian faith to be true and other faiths not to be true, and they understand certain things about God and Jesus and the Bible and so forth. And so inevitably there's going to be some spillover then when they begin to think about Muslims, and then that may be a, a kind of spillover when they begin to think about differences more broadly, Asian American Christians or Latinos, whatever it might be. The ones who are more thoughtful uh, in congregations that are more thoughtful and address those issues generally are making some movement in their in their thinking uh, about religious and cultural diversity. So in my view, the blame comes to rest back in the churches, especially with the clergy and the lay leaders who who just aren't addressing these major social changes uh, that are going on. Um, one example that I think kind of illustrates uh, some of the thinking that needs to be done uh, has to do with Pres President Bush, actually, and, and I don't mean this in, in any way as a particular criticism of President Bush, but simply because he is a public figure, these are examples we know about. After 9-11, about 10 days after when he addressed the joint session of Congress, he made a very strong point to say to Muslims everywhere, we respect your faith. And he visited the Islamic Center in Washington, D.C. as a kind of <coughs> symbolic gesture in that respect. He was the same person, though, who about a year and a half earlier had said, when, when he was a candidate for office, that his Bible teaches him that only Christians go to heaven, which he then got criticized for and kind of backed off and hasn't said again. But that kind of dual way of understanding the world was one that came up in a lot of interviews we did with evangelical Christians, where on the one hand, they were trained to be good citizens, and so they absolutely you know, said that they respected other people and were tolerant of other people. But at the same time, they hadn't ever quite connected their theological understandings with that. So that was where the dots needed to be connected. Now, very briefly on, on, the, on the point about fascism or militarism, it turns out in a kind of odd way for the same reasons that people don't think very deeply about these things. When one looks at recent surveys about American militarism, unless the question is very specifically something about kind of supporting President Bush, whom they've voted for and support and so forth, there's no relationship between being an evangelical Christian and supporting American military kind of preemptive unilateral intervention in the rest of the world. Um, so on that issue, the, um, the, the most that one might say if, if one were to raise critical questions is that the evangelical community has largely been silent, whereas other religious traditions have been much more vocal about the war.
You question, I was stuck with your data, which I no doubt is right, but your data sometimes does not conform to my own experience, so not being a social scientist, I can go with my own experience. Uh, one thing, your second, your, your data on that, your last piece of data did, did, I think, confirm what I said, in fact, that it becomes a matter of prudence, and I would add that militarism, that is, wanting to have an aggressive foreign policy on behalf of human rights, is not fascism. It may be wrong. Uh, but it's not fascism, and but not only that. But, but very quickly, the the the, the uh, my students uh, at my college. I'm not an evangelical. I'm not even thoughtful. But we have a lot of uh, we have a lot of thoughtful evangelical students, and they're just they they go to mission trips everywhere. And there's an evangelical impulse here, but it's soft. They believe it's their duty to minister to aid people with AIDS in Africa build houses in, in South Asia and all this. And so they, they just don't, they, they're exclusiveness, exclusivist on the matter of what's true. But they're just so full of charity. I've, I've never seen anything like it. Most Americans are, whatever their theoretical views, are incredibly exclusivist in practice by comparison. Any other uh, student questions before we open the floor, General? Please feel free. Okay, uh, floor is uh, open. Yeah, let me start all the way in the back up there. Yeah. Yes, I, I am, absolutely. Um, it, it always seemed to me that the, the idea of civil religion in Rousseau, but probably more clearly in Bella because of the Tocquevillian influence or maybe even more, more because of the Durkheimian influence that focused on commonality and shared assumptions was what was historically good about civil religion, especially when it didn't become worship of the nation state, but it had still that transcendent prophetic aspect to it. And that what began to break down increasingly in the 1980s uh, was precisely that sense of commonality. So that people were beginning to fight. And I've, I've never felt fully comfortable with the term culture wars, but there is an aspect to that argument that relates to civil religion that makes a lot of sense. If people, people were fighting about different views of the way in which the sacred manifested itself in the society, civil religion in, in that sense. And yes, we've, we've seen a continuation over the last 25 years of that kind of identifying the evil, the other side, and saying that, you know, no, we're we're right, but the other side is wrong, and so forth. That does serve certain social functions of generating perhaps some solidarity on each side. Um, and it also it has sometimes the beneficial consequence of bringing some of the deep issues into the public arena so that they can be discussed. 
Um, I think I think that's that's a point where Richard John Newhouse's argument about you know, bringing these issues, religion, others into the public square makes a lot of sense. Uh, on the other hand, we do live with an awful lot of division uh, as a result. Peter, did you want to say anything? Well, I, I, I would just add uh, that that's exactly right, and that religion is uh, attacking the authority of science. Well, this is a great and powerful and mainly good American tradition as religion uh, attacks scientific racism, religion attacks eugenics, religion attacks scientific socialism. And today, it's, it, even though religious attacks are not as thoughtful as they should be often, the religious attack of the dogmatic libertarianism of our, our dominant bioethical community, uh, it's, it's in the name of the truth, right? Even though oftentimes religious leaders can't express that truth very well. Okay, let me uh, go to the opposite extreme down here with Professor Mahoney, and I'll work to the middle. Yeah, okay, Professor Mahoney. Uh, come back to the question of Uh, the question uh, is, uh, well, really, uh, I, I suppose the proposal is that uh, exclusivist uh, Christian animosity toward uh, Muslims has to be understood in light of the uh, lack of a high-profile, uh, truly moderate Muslim uh, response to uh, some of the extremist or Islamist uh, activity uh, in the world. And uh, Professor Mahoney has called particular attention to the uh, uh, aftermath of the publication, the horrible killings and so forth and burnings in, after the publication of the uh, uh, anti-Islamic uh, uh, cartoons in uh, Denmark. Professor Lawler, I think that, or was it Professor Wood now? You wanted I, I, I guess, think, I, guess think, I think it is a good point. Okay, now Professor Wood. Well, uh, yes, your point is well taken. Uh, I do want to raise some complexity about it. However, uh, 
One is that when we talked with a fairly large number of Muslim clergy and uh, members of mosques in the United States, uh, who overwhelmingly were moderate Muslims, uh, they expressed the same views. So, you know, that, that certainly adds some credibility, I, I think. Their view, in addition, their very strong argument was that tolerance is not what they want. They want understanding. And that's what they don't feel anybody, you know, even including people in their own community, are working toward understanding between Muslims and Christians. A uh, few people we interviewed who were uh, very deeply engaged in that kind of inter-religious interaction uh, were uh, by and large not saying, you know, okay, so we, we came out with a kind of religious Esperanto where we believe a little bit of everything. We came to a deeper understanding of our own faith in relation to the other faith. The other thing, though, to, to uh, perhaps you know, disagree with your point a little bit is that, yes, one can, one can accuse what's going on in the Muslim world as being you know, part of the tension. That's certainly true. At the same time, it's hard to understand why roughly 20% of the American Christian population doesn't think Buddhists should be allowed to worship in the United States. Okay. Buddhists haven't been much of a problem in, in the United States. Yeah. Okay, uh, I'll work toward the middle view, sir. Uh, um, my question comes with the terminology of inclusivist and inclusivist. Um, you appear to me both spiritual shoppers and the inclusivists are more than ready to exclude the exclusivists. Um, and, uh, and this is, I, I think, if you use the terminology, those who The uh, questioner has uh, called into question uh, some of the categories, or the labeling at least, of the categories uh, in the uh, data uh, analysis that Professor Wood now proposed, particularly uh, wondering uh, whether it makes sense to distinguish inclusivist from exclusivist Christians, because uh, after all, the so-called inclusivists also have views such as those of the uh, exclusivists that they would exclude. So perhaps this portrays uh, the uh, uh, so-called inclusivists in a uh, 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 more positive light than they should be, and biases the analysis. Well, I'm I'm def I'm using these terms in in rather specialized ways that probably didn't come through the brief comments I made. I'm using 
Christian exclusivist to refer to people who believe that you really do have to believe in Jesus and that's the only way to find God. Whereas Christian inclusivists are very dedicated to Christianity, but they also have a kind of open system approach that says, well, there's probably truth and other paths and to many mansions and, and so forth. And spiritual shoppers, you know, which, which actually to a lot of people is, when they hear it, is the most uh, kind of negatively uh, framed uh, phrase. Uh, these, these are people who are eclectic and believe in borrowing a little bit of everything. But there's a, uh, there's a kind of normative uh, concern on my part uh, about what's going on, on in all three of these communities. And once again, these are not mutually exclusive uh, labels at all. My aim is certainly not to say to the Christian exclusivist, you ought to become a Christian inclusivist. Not at all. It's more to say to the Christian exclusivist, you bring a great deal of wisdom to the table, value to our culture. You, ha you have some work to do. You're faced with a much more diverse world than was true a generation or, or two ago. You have to think through those, those issues. <clears throat> To the Christian inclusivist, my concern is more that they often are Christians as a matter of convenience rather than of conviction. Um, they may be very heavily involved in their congregations, but because it's you know the place they can be useful uh, in the community, the challenge for them is figuring out: okay, if if all religions are true, then why be? one of them. Why, why affiliate with one of them? So they also have work to do. Christian shoppers have, have a lot of potential to offer because they, they have dabbled, in many cases, a little bit with other traditions, gained a little bit of knowledge. But it's often been rather superficial. And so once again, they could stand to you know, kind of be pushed to deal with diversity in a deeper way as well. That, that's really kind of the agenda that's in my mind. Professor Lawler, did you want to comment? You laid out the dilemmas across the board. Let me, let me give you one example, though, from, from uh, my college, which is a small college in the South that has an ordinary faculty, ordinary liberal faculty, but has fairly religious students. The, our administrators now have imposed, and it may be lifted, but it's, it's imposed at least temporarily, it's kind of negative affirmative action against homeschooled students. That we, want, we, we don't want to take as many, even, this is top secret stuff, do not let that. <laughs> uh, don't want to take as many, and you ask why, and I said because they are intolerant of difference. And at first glance, this makes no sense at all because they are really, really different. Uh, <laughs> But what it seems to mean is they can still see differences. Like they can see that there is a moral difference between casual sex and conjugal sex, hetero heterosexual marriage and same-sex marriage and ordinary love and the big love you see on HBO and, and so forth. And, and so the objection against them is they take differences seriously, moral difference. And the the reigning doctrine is you must be indifferent to difference, but the doctrine that you must be indifferent to difference makes you intolerance of the genuine difference, which is orthodox religion. <laughs> okay, yes, you, sir. Another question about this classification. Uh, after listening to Professor Waller's address, 
three, that's the one I would pick, so it's all right. <laughs> I must not have been listening closely. He sounded like a spiritual seeker to me. <laughs> um, you know, what I've, what I've found in uh, forums like this is that uh, academics uh, never like to be classified in any of the, the three. And, uh, so, uh, and I think that's because, you know, hopefully academics are, are more thoughtfully engaged and, and in some cases more conflicted. Uh, in other cases, that's not true. Um, but, um, for instance, there's a, there's a prominent uh, scholar whose, whose name I won't mention who was quite convinced that she fell into the spiritual chopper category and, and she was outraged and you know, I, I said no I, I don't I, I know you and I know your work and I, I don't see you as a spiritual shopper at all you have a much richer deeper understanding of several religious traditions it makes you a, a pluralist but not the kind of shallow shopper. You don't, you don't have this category that, that Robert recommends spiritual seeker it just sounds better shopper sounds bad oh. seeker sounds good <laughs> <laughs> Well, well can, I, uh, can I follow up myself then on the uh, question that the uh, questioner just uh, raised uh, and uh, ask whether the data would uh, show that there are significant differences between uh, Orthodox Catholics and Evangelical Protestants uh, by virtue of the uh, different accounts that are available to them of our access to moral knowledge and of uh, the possibility of uh, salvation through Christ without explicit uh, faith, explicit faith in Christ. I think all the uh, unprecedented cooperation in our lifetime between Orthodox Catholics and Evangelical Protestants has perhaps obscured a little bit the different uh, theologies that make available a story that Catholics can tell themselves and live by in their uh, public, uh, as well as private, but certainly the salient here, public action that you know just isn't available or isn't available yet. Maybe a Protestant, uh, Thomas Aquinas, has not stepped forward yet to provide the resources for a story that uh, that could be told like the Catholic story. What's uh, struck me about listening to Professor Lawler is he, uh, he, he sounded very much like a Catholic. Uh, and uh, that's someone who uh, believes the Christian story is true, uh, but also uh, believes that, uh, in the words of the uh, document of the Second Vatican Council on the World Religions, that we affirm all that is good and true in the non-Christian uh, religions uh, of the world. Of course, laying a very special emphasis, as it did, on uh, the Jewish faith as the very foundation of Christian faith, uh, which would later uh, give the uh, Pope John Paul II the opportunity to, to uh, praise Judaism as the elder brother, uh, the Jews as the elder brothers of Christians in faith. So is that, uh, is that difference salient despite our tending to lump Catholics and evangelicals uh, together because of the political cooperation? Uh, the difference is indeed salient, um, once again, especially among uh, more thoughtful conservative Catholics and evangelical Protestants, uh, you do see those, those different traditions and different understandings of, of faith and of, uh, of Jesus and, and of the church uh, becoming evident. 
I do think, though, that the more important story probably is the convergence uh, between the two. Um, at, at least, in, in, once again, not at a kind of high level of theological understanding, but at least if, if you compare what thoughtful grassroots Catholics and Protestants are saying who, who take their Christian faith seriously, and, and you juxtapose that against the way outsiders view them, or the media especially view them, um, there's just a radical misunderstanding on, on the part of the media elites mm -hmm. especially. Mm -hmm. The best example of, of this, I, I think, is the way in which biblical literalists are characterized by the media. Almost always the next words are that they surely must believe in seven-day creation, 24 hours, and believe in a whole lot of other you know, kind of specific things. I haven't found that to be the meaning of biblical literalism among Protestants or Catholics who say they are biblical literalists. What they mean is they take the Bible seriously, a moral guide for their life. Do they, understand, do, do they understand yeah. that there's scientific things that aren't in, in the Bible? Sure. Do they say there may be historical errors? Yes. They may call themselves inerrantists, but they still you know, say that those things are there. They simply want to say the Bible is important in their life. They've, lives. They've personalized it uh, in that sense. Now, another point of convergence between Catholics and Protestants that I find very interesting is that when you, when you push evangelical Protestants about evangelism, and you say, okay, you believe that you believe you, you have to believe in Jesus to be saved. What about your Jewish friend or your Muslim friend? They'll say, no, no, they're not saved. You say, okay, have you talked to them? Have you tried to tell them about Jesus? Well, no. <laughs> Why not? We believe God will work it out. What makes you believe that? God's ways are above ours. It's a mystery. Um, yeah, so. well, this, uh, you recalled uh, President Bush's uh, statement and my uh, a year and a half before the uh, uh, visit to the mosque. And uh, if I recall correctly, the rest of that story was that it was Billy Graham then who counseled then-candidate Bush and said, no, you've gone too far with that. Uh, what you must recognize is that the unbaptized or un non-Christian, unsaved, uh, person is in God's hands, and we can't say that they're damned. Yeah. Well, thank you. Okay. Uh, yeah. Uh, Michael Sullivan. Yeah, it's sort of for Professor Wood now, and I was wondering in traditions with a strong social justice component, like the Catholic Church, where you have a lot of um, parishioners who are nevertheless exclusivists, and not, um, they, it's a social, the social justice tradition is explicit, but it's not connected with a, um, with the uh, liberal Protestant point of view as well. If there is a distinction among the gra among grassroots parishioners um, about issues that are typically seen as uh, left wing, such as uh, immigration, uh, welfare reform, etc., um, from their conservative evangelical brethren, um, or if um, the parishioners who who are exclusivists and who are Catholic um, don't reflect of the elite uh, in that church. Uh, Michael, uh, 
raises the uh, point that uh, Catholicism has a very strong social justice uh, tradition uh, as uh, articulated in the papal encyclicals beginning with Rerum Navarum and going all the way uh, through to the uh, present. And he asks whether this uh, uh, creates a point of difference with uh, evangelicals since, after all, the most uh, orthodox of Catholics will... Uh, uh, if he embraces the social justice tradition, which quote orthodox one would expect him to do, would put him on the liberal side on some issues, such as uh, uh, immigration was one that Michael uh, uh, mentioned, and uh, I think there were some uh, some others. Okay? Uh, you're exactly right about that. Uh, because of the social justice tradition, option for the poor in the Catholic Church, Catholics are more likely to embrace, uh, you know, so-called structural changes, uh, uh, social reform uh, efforts uh, that deal with collectivities or, or entire groups, whether it's ethnic groups, or immigrant groups, etc. cetera, uh, whereas evangelical Protestants are still more likely to embrace a, a, a kind of individualized form of charity, um, volunteer work, uh, and so forth. But that's also changing, and, and it's changing in some very interesting ways. It's a distinction that's more common now when people think about domestic issues, let's say, is how to help poor people in the United States or people in their own communities, than it is in international uh, arenas. Uh, this, this is where your example of you know, students uh, you know, going overseas or whatever to, uh, to help others. You look at Catholic Relief Services and World Vision and World Relief, and International Justice Mission, um, evangelism and individual charity and social structural reform are all mixed together in just very, very interesting ways. Mm -hmm. and so somehow because it's, maybe because it's overseas, we haven't had the kind of divisive political debates about it. I mean, for instance, the. U.S. government has supported Catholic Relief Services and World Vision in huge amounts for 25 years, and you know we we just don't think that it's much of a controversial issue. I would add to that uh, point the fact that it was really evangelical Protestants who have uh, taken the lead both in trying to call attention to uh, uh, the uh, horrible uh, oppression and even genocide in the Sudan. Uh, and uh, also to the uh, problem of uh, international slave trading and especially sex uh, trafficking. I mean, Nicholas uh, Kristof, a liberal writer for the New York Times, uh, uh, pointed this out as if it were a kind of surprise that he wanted to bring to the attention of uh, uh, New York Times readers. <laughs> he even got a certain amount of flack from New York Times readers about saying nice things about evangelical Christians. but. You know, if you, if you look at uh, these uh, areas, they seem to be very much uh, responding to uh, uh, the tradition of Catholic uh, social thought as articulated in uh, those uh, encyclicals. But my own uh, impression is that it was more the evangelicals than the Catholics taking the lead uh, on those issues. Uh, yeah, ma'am. Okay. 
there's a um, question here about sovereignty and immigration with 11 million illegal aliens coming into the uh, United States. Uh, one, <laughs> one point that that would raise that is uh, pertinent to the uh, uh, discussion on the table today is the question of the religious influence being brought by uh, immigrants, whether uh, uh, who are coming here either lawfully or uh, unlawfully. Uh, it uh, is often said by uh, conservatives that uh, particularly Hispanic immigrants actually bring more of a conservative family values, traditional Christian, whether Catholic or evangelical, uh, dimension to uh, our social life. And I noticed uh, in the newspaper that the uh, uh, arch-conservative, if that's the right word, uh, radio commentator, uh, Michael Savage, uh, launched into a virulent anti-Catholic diatribe uh, after these uh, demonstrations in favor of uh, uh, immigration and uh, seemingly supporting illegal immigration, blaming the Catholic Church for uh, uh, being behind illegal immigration as a way of trying to deflect attention from its own problems, and also to uh, raise the uh, uh, number of Catholics uh, in the country. So perhaps uh, you could comment on that. I, I'm, I, I think perhaps you exaggerate the sovereignty problem and being a Catholic and wanting more. No, no. Uh, the, uh, I, 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 uh, I'm just not on the ground in Texas or California where it may well be a big problem. In my area of the country, what I know, my, my local knowledge is we have a large number of Mexican and, and Guatemalan immigrants. They do take jobs locals will not do, like plucking chickens and building cheap non-union houses. Uh, they do not take to take jobs away from Americans. Uh, families are as strong as you could expect for people who are, who are dislocated. Uh, there is a religious war, uh, in a nice way, between the Catholics and uh, Pentecostals uh, for these people. People come from rural areas in Mexico where there frequently are no priests. Really, just don't know the difference. So it's kind of but when you say a, re a religious war, constantly not a war, a war, a scrap war, war. There, no, no, but, but yeah. you're saying that competing for the allegiance of these people, competing not whether the they should come or no, not. No, no, competing for the allegiance of these people in a very nice way. And so, the religious leaders of the area are very inclusive. They accept these people as members of our community, and they minister better than the government does to all their social needs. And so uh, the least xenophobic part of, of Georgia when it comes to uh, uh, our, our immigrants, legal or illegal, are, are the Catholics, the Pentecostals, and relatively low church evangelicals. Bob, did you want to say anything? Well, just briefly, this is a very complicated topic even for experts who have been studying immigration for a long time. I, I happen to be in a department here in the sociology department that has some of the best people in, in the world studying immigration, and they disagree among themselves on precisely this issue that's being debated now about guest worker programs and amnesty, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and one of the reasons for that is, is that it's not all of one piece when you think about the immigrant or the illegal uh, immigrant population, many, many different kinds of people from many different countries, uh, some of whom are very successful, some of, some of whom need social services, some of whom are single men who mostly send their checks back to their families in another country, others are entire families. 
I think here in New Jersey, as, as a lot of you probably know, that churches are generally uh, doing what uh, has been described in Los Angeles, and that is trying to help immigrants, whether they're legal or illegal, uh, because they often do need social services, and some of them, especially in this community, have been here for 20 years, and now all of a sudden the INS is knocking at their door and deporting the breadwinner and telling the rest of the family, fend for yourself, or deporting them as well. So the churches have taken a, a kind of charitable approach to that, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the church folks are all on the side of uh, opening the doors or legalizing all 11 million who are now illegal. That's why it's complicated. Well, they don't look at it from that point of view with the mega public policy. It's what's going on where they are, right? Yeah. I want to make sure, I know there are a number of hands in the air. <clears throat> I want to make sure that our European uh, friends have an opportunity to get involved in the discussion if they wish. I don't want to put you on the spot, but please, uh, we have a few more minutes left, so if you would like to be recognized, let me know. Yes, sir. I would like to go back to the uh, title of the conference, uh, Civic Re Religion and Democratic Politics. And the question that I would like to raise follows through somewhat from the immigration thing, where the Bishop of Los Angeles indicated that it was his religious duty and commitment to give food and shelter to immigrants, whether they're here legally or illegally, and if the government says that that constitutes a crime, then so be it. He directs his, his people to violate the law. The question that I would like to raise is that this morning we heard from Professor McClay that there was this, this growing conflict in the community over this question of civil or civic religion that raises questions of the continuing, and he used the term loyalty, of these groups to the, to the government. And in terms of Professor Whitnow, I would suggest that this is probably the community that we would refer to as exclusive. And the question that I have is, and it goes also to Professor George, that I believe in your article in First Things, you raised the question that there can come a time when the positions taken by the government are so contrary to one's religious values and beliefs and commitments that it raises questions of legitimacy as to that government. And that, so I, I, want, I would like to hear the, some discussion as to whether the debate that you would like to bring forward is one that has consequences unlike we've seen historically, although the closest I would guess would be John Brown's position that slavery was such a, a moral, religious violation that the only response that you could have was to declare the government as illegitimate, that the Constitution was in fact the work of the devil, and that one disassociated themselves by taking violent action against it. And I wonder if we could have some, some comments on that. Well, this is a uh, profoundly important question that has been uh, raised, but uh, it really defies my quick uh, uh, summary of it. I'll, I'll only say that the, uh, for the tape that the questioner has pointed out that uh, recently uh, 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 Cardinal Mahoney, the Archbishop of, of uh, Los Angeles, uh, said that he simply would not comply 
uh, with laws uh, if the laws were interpreted to prevent him and uh, Catholics under his authority from fulfilling their religious duty to uh, minister to uh, the needs of uh, em immigrants, whether they're here lawfully or uh, unlawfully, uh, and if uh, they have to go to jail for that, they'll go to jail for that. And this raises, in light of the overall theme of this conference, uh, the question of uh, the point at which for religious people, uh, conscience requires them to uh, no longer regard themselves as uh, <clears throat> citizens of a legitimate uh, political uh, regime. And the issue may arise uh, with respect to any of a wide number of areas in which government policy may uh, in effect, render believers, whether they're Christian or otherwise, in view of their particular moral convictions attaching to their faiths as uh, outsiders, as what uh, perhaps uh, Stanley Hauerwas thinks all Christians are uh, resident aliens, but, but aliens uh, in their society. I've done my best to capture it for the tape, uh, but answer the question he actually put, not my summary of it. Well, I happen to come from the same state that John Brown did, so I'm not actually much of a fan of the John Brown example, strictly because of his use of violence. Um, leaving that aside, I mean, putting in one category people who, let's say, I'm not going to play by the rules of a democracy, and so I'm going to shoot abortion doctors or you know whatever. I, I think that's just a separate category. We don't want to go there. But leaving that aside, Yes, there's a long history of civil dissent and indeed civil disobedience in the name of religion. So I, for one, would hope that we would continue that. I'd, I'd be dismayed if the civil religion, you know, suddenly became so respectable that everybody just said, well, you know, we've got to support the administration or the opposition party or, you know, whatever is told to us in our communities or in Washington. Um, to do that would be going against what we learned from the example of Martin Luther King or what we've learned from Quakers and conscientious objection or Jehovah's Witnesses or I mean, the list just goes on and on and on. Where I do find myself being somewhat concerned uh, about that kind of dissent is when it becomes a kind of symbolic way of affirming one's identity. That is, let's suppose somebody is an evangelical Christian, and by every stroke of the imagination, they live like everybody else in their community. Their purchasing habits are exactly the same. Their work habits are exactly the same. Their family habits are exactly the same. And then from time to time, they say, oh, but we're being oppressed and our values are being put upon and we're going to have to stand against the rest of the society. Well, you know, I'm not sure that their protest is really very credible because their lifestyle doesn't seem to go along with their protest. That, that's, that's just an example, and I use that example because there is a, a very good study by a sociologist at the University of North Carolina, Christian Smith, called American Evangelicalism Embattled and Thriving, that argues precisely that it's this sense of being embattled that provides a great deal of identity, whereas in practice and in belief, there really aren't many things that they disagree with the rest of the society about. 
Peter, did you want to add anything? Or say anything? Well, well, I think the Archbishop was being a little dramatic, number one. Number two, on the actual issue of slavery being bad, John Brown was right. Uh, but uh, the... Uh, I know this is controversial, but I got <laughs> uh, the, uh, the, we object to it because of the loony choice of means to achieve a goal that would be good, that is, the abolition of slavery. And so the, 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 uh, the cost outweighed the benefit. Uh, it would be much better to preserve the constitutional order, even at the expense of a certain amount of injustice. And at all, all places and all times, we Americans choose the constitutional order at the expense of a certain amount of injustice. So. Catholics who are opposed to uh, abortion really believe the civil disobedience you were talking about, to not killing anyone, but you know, withdrawing their consent from America would do more harm than good. Uh, but the uh, the real danger is not civil disobedience, I think, but as Professor McClay properly pointed out, secessionism. That is, a large number of Orthodox and Evangelical believers would simply stop participating in the American community except to protect their rights not to participate. They would make a church, homeschooled. You can see in the marriage issue an alliance between the libertarians and the evangelicals and other Orthodox Christians and Jews perhaps, that rather than allow same-sex marriage, they would simply abolish civil marriage altogether which is what the libertarians, real, real libertarians, really want. And why, you know, this, what is marriage is an individual thing. And I do think a lot of evangelicals would accept that rather than accept same-sex marriage down the road. And, and what's bad about this is a civil institution that links us together as a social community then disappears. So as, as Robbie pointed out, the, the, the danger that's really specific to the evangelicals is for them to come to believe that we have nothing but a clash of worldviews in America, that you have the secular, aimless, relativistic worldview, and the only antidote to that is conversion or a whole hog endorsement of the biblical worldview. So when I talk at evangelical colleges, the first thing I say is, even if there were no God, aimless relativism would still not be true. Can you grasp that? You know, so it, so there, there is a way for the evangelicals uh, to talk to the secularists, and that way uh, is traditionally called the uh, natural law. There are things citizens can hold in common that don't depend very specifically on, on, on faith presuppositions. Uh, but insofar as the evangelicals don't go that route, and insofar as judicial decisions push liberalism or the spirit of the contract and consent to places where it never went before into the area of marriage. I don't really think civil disobedience or anyone uprising is going to happen, but I think the tend to secessionism will continue. It's really oh, let me let me repeat the question. If there is no uh, civic religion in the sense of true civic religion, uh, how can we make sense of principles of international justice? For example, uh, those which were applied uh, uh, after the World War II to the Nazi war criminals at Nuremberg. 
my response would be, if there's only civil religion, we cannot make sense of them, in fact. There has to be a, a reality all human beings in the world share in common, which would be a ground of the rights at the foundation of that. In other words, our claims for rights have to actually be true. I'm, I'm a hardliner in this. Uh, it's, Robbie is a hardliner in this. He's like a Everything. he's like a, he's like he's like uh, the anti you know, Time and again, I've heard him say, "Is our Declaration of Independence a myth, or is it true?" Uh, sometimes, I, you know, we can argue concerning why it's true, but this uh, really is the bottom line. If it's just a civil religion, if it's just a sentiment we hold in common, or something which moves us uh, to uh, communal activity then there is nothing there. I'm a hardliner on that. Professor Janko, did you want to be? Mm -hmm. Yes, uh, since you invited us to speak, well, I feel a little bit forced. I've been silent because uh, really this is a problem on which I have nothing to say in the United States. This is some kind of mysterious aspect of the American society for us. <laughs> I, mean, I have been living in this country for almost 10 years, and I'll bet you've opened the door now. <laughs> Consequences must follow. try to summarize uh, Professor Yanko's very important uh, uh, intervention other than to say he's called attention to the difference between the European perception and the American perception on the issue that uh, we have uh, been discussing, noting that uh, in Europe uh, the emphasis is uh, on uh, the grounding of uh, moral values that provide the common denominator to hold society together on uh, rational principles and not on uh, uh, forms of religion that involve uh, <clears throat> belief in the afterlife or in a uh, transcendent or divine uh, guarantor of uh, moral principles. So uh, I think that's sufficient for the tape. Okay. I mean, if, if there is an American difference in this, it would be something like this. 
we hold, like, who am I to speak for everyone, but uh, we hold something like this, that the rational view is that every human being transcends the material world and the political world because of his or her nature. Uh, government gives no content to this, except the limit of government is the religious capability of every human being under God. So from our point of view, the difference between the American Revolution and the French Revolution is the French Revolution, as Professor Elstein said yesterday, was more uh, monistic or, or civil. This transcendent dimension that limits government disappeared along the development of the modern world. So we, we say, we, we Americans generically say, it is rational to say, we can see with our own eyes that human nature points beyond the political world in each particular case. We're free from material and political determination to discover God and the good for ourselves. And because this is a fundamentally a social thing, it implies the real existence of churches, although not, you know, not any particular church, but the existence of churches in general. Uh, Professor Whitman, would you like to make any comment on the European-American difference? I know that your comments were mostly about America. Okay. Well, uh, we've Professor Yunko's uh, question enabled us to conclude on a point that will lead very nicely into the panel that we have for later this afternoon, the uh, culminating panel at which we have two very eminent scholars uh, addressing the question does democracy need religion? Putting very explicitly the uh, problem that Professor Yanko has put on the table, Professor Patrick Deneen and Professor Mauricio Biroli at uh, 2.45 back in uh, this room. And so please now join me in thanking Professor Robert Wood and Professor Peter. <laughs>